0: Okay, so it's divided up. We got Australia, South America, Bear
1: Country. Is that America? Wait, where are we on the map? We're at the San Francisco Zoo. This place is roaming with myths and monsters. Oh, there, okay. Humans have always mythologized well, and then we animals. Go to the right, to the we give them incredible yeah. powers Straight and ahead. turn them into frightening monsters, even yeah. when they're in cages. Like, I, I think this rhino is beautiful. I don't know if you saw the other rhino on the other side of the zoo. We think the Indian rhino might be behind the myth of unicorns. In Greece, rhino horns were believed to purify water. They're still used in some traditional medicines for fevers or headaches. The one with the without its horn looks super unnatural and very strange. So something about like the the wildness or like the the nature of it. Yeah. Rhinos are at the brink of extinction because they've been targeted for the mythical power of their horns. And then we can go to the right for the monkeys. Yeah, straight ahead. You're listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each episode we take a common human experience like speculating, or solitude, or immigrating, and bring you stories that explore and deepen our understanding of that experience. Today's show, Mythologizing.
0: I sort of don't expect this one to interact with us. Like, I don't care if this one looks at me or not.
1: Wandering around the zoo feels like I'm encountering animals that have lost their powers or their wildness. Most of the animals are asleep, ignoring the sound of kids tapping on the glass. Wait, did you just confuse a cheetah and a giraffe's head? I thought that maybe it was like the hind legs of a cheetah, but it was the, the hump on the giraffe's forehead. But now I can totally see it. This week, we're sharing stories of mythologizing. We're looking for myths in the modern world. I'm Claudia Hamak. In our first story, we talked to Elaine Treharn, a professor who studies monsters in medieval literature. But the monsters of Beowulf aren't the only monsters in her world.
2: So I used to smoke. I would go out, I'd be working on Beowulf, say, and I would go outside for a cigarette in the night, and you know the British winters. It's dark at 3pm, and it gets light again about 8am, right? And I'd be having a cigarette, and I'd think about Beowulf, and I would have to just immediately stomp out the cigarette, run inside, lock the door, lock the door, lock the door, because I'd frighten myself, because I could imagine a monster coming down the side of the house. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no kid thing about it. I am most afraid of any monster that's lurking in the shadows. I'm Elaine Trahan. I am a medievalist and most particularly an Anglo-Saxonist and actually more important than anything else, I am Welsh. So I was born in Aberystwyth and that kind of... uh, Identifies me to a T. A monster is either something that is unlike us or a, an identifiably human figure whose actions and behaviors are unintelligible, deeply evil, inspired by malice, and cause harm. But I think women are labeled monstrous by by male authors, male politicians who don't understand them and fear them and or who are suspicious of their permeable bodies, their kind of leaky bodies. We see this a lot in medieval high medieval texts. Male authors who clearly feel deeply afraid of women. And what women can make those men feel. So in the case of of Grendel's mother, she's seeking vengeance for her son. So she has motivation. And it's intelligible that if your child was killed or harmed, you would, a mother would seek some form of retribution. So that motivation is intelligible. Grendel's mother does not act out of uh, a premeditated evilness right it's within the kind of code of vengeance for the loss of one's relative lady macbeth doesn't physically do anything she doesn't kill anyone she's inspirational to a killer and i think there are probably many other instances of a woman goading a man on uh in terms of acquisition of power through um destruction or uh kind of barbaric acts um but so so generally speaking historically women have been less responsible for the enactment of monstrosity or so it's actual enacting or um have have been provided with motivation in some in some way even if what happens to them then is that they are hunted down and executed Through history, I think women have been brutally attacked when they don't abide by social, moral, theological codes that are enacted by men for men. So women who exemplify some kind of prophetic power, for example, who, who are able to cure, who do things that aren't what's acceptable, then they are labelled as miscreants, wretches... Witches and hags, and actually, I'm over fifty. And when you get to over fifty, currently in society, you you are you are made monstrous. Aging is monstrous for women. I think it's not utterly desirable for men either, but it doesn't result in the same kinds of societal attitudes, which currently are to completely ignore that middle-aged woman. She is rendered invisible. The fact that women make you feel lustful is the is it's the woman's fault, and of course we see that now in um, in contemporary descriptions court case, of court cases that are dealing with um, rape or sexual harassment or assault. It's the woman it's the woman's fault for being a seductress, or so it's still very it isn't just medieval. It's still very prevalent in society. So I don't think society is progressing particularly well at all in, in terms of our social and cultural codes. We're not burned at the stake anymore, but women are still punished simply by virtue of being.
1: Elaine Treharn. As a kid, I heard so many stories of magic. Not of Beowulf, but of Easter bunnies and unicorns. I stopped believing these stories as I got older. But I want to believe there's still magic somewhere, hiding maybe in each of us.
0: I got this job interview in Midland, Texas. You really can't fly to these locations in Texas. So they said, oh, can you come in two weeks to this place for the interview? And I was like, oh, yeah, of course I can. Like, oh, do you have a car? (laughs) Oh, my God, I have to buy a car within two weeks. I'm Noe, or Achino Ampalik. I am a third-year PhD student in the Energy Resources Engineering Department. He was planning to do more fixes to it before he sold it. He was just initially putting it on Craigslist before it was really ready. And I was like, no, no, it's good, it's good, I'm going to take it. I was thinking, oh, it's, it's a Honda. It must be okay. I don't think he mentioned the quantity and quality of the fixes that needed to be done. The window wouldn't even go down. Like, you just you would press, and it be like... Nah. The window would just fall into the car. I call her Lady Krishna. Lady Krishna, like Lady Gaga. Lady Krishna was very powerful. I felt I was queen of the world, and Lady Krishna was that powerful person who was like taking me out there. Then, the car stopped working. Like, in the middle of the road, all the gauges went down to zero. Luckily, I had, like, roadside assistance. And we were in the middle of the boonies, like, near... What is that place with the aliens in New Mexico? Roswell. I wasn't even next to Roswell. I was, like, two hours (laughs) from Roswell. So we actually got towed... I think it's, like, one of the longest places you could get towed, like, in the United States. My interview was the next day, and also, it was a Sunday. There was one AutoZone or O'Reilly's open. I got this battery cleaner. I scraped some, a lot of rust off of the, um... What are those, like, little sticks that come out of the battery, called? And then the car magically started again. And I drove... Boom! Like, just like as fast as I possibly could, and I came an hour late to the interview. And um, I got the job. I showed off my car. Yeah, this is my car. I've had it for
3: years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Then it happened again. That little battery post-cleaning did not actually solve the problem. Like, and this is just, like, so scary. You're on a highway. There's other cars around you going super fast. And then I realized I have to take it to a mechanic. And the guy was like, you have a problem with the ignition switch. It's going to cost you $500. $500. $500? Like, no! At that point, I went onto YouTube, looked around. I saw there was this tutorial, how to fix the ignition switch. And it was only 20 minutes long. Like, wow, 20 minutes? That was it. I was going to go and, and fix it. And we just followed followed the tutorial. Went to sit in the car, raining outside. this box around the steering wheel. Steering wheel a bit lower. All these wires, we're were taking them out. And we were having trouble putting all the pieces back together. I can totally see my obituary. Like, girl fixes her own car on her own, drives to Santa Fe, uh, dies because (laughs) the fix she made was a total disaster. Mm -hmm. I did not have the confidence of an engineer. I didn't have such a great experience, maybe in my bachelor's degree. You sit in class, you solve some problems, you know, Eichels, you know, MX plus B, and you never feel like you have an impact on the world, because you're just doing all these exercises. When I was fixing Lady Krishna, I think for the first time, I, I really felt like an engineer when I was turning the ignition switch and then I, the car light like came back to life, I was so happy. You have to just be willing to, to try and to venture into that uncertain space. That gave me a lot of confidence uh, or excitement even from engineering. Like sometimes you may think of a mechanic or real engineers, like they have this magic about them. Like, no, there, there is no magic. You're just connecting things. There's no, like, golden hands.
1: <laughs> llama! We're at the llama exhibit at the San Francisco Zoo. We found some llamas. This makes me think of that movie. Which one? Which one? Emperor's New Groove.
0: Oh mm. my gosh, I love Emperor's
1: The animals that appear in movies are rarely really animals. I mean, they talk. They're heroes and villains. They're animals behaving like humans. In our next story, we talk to someone whose career is built on the backs of monsters. Comic book professor Scott Buchatman tells us why he connects with the monsters on the page.
4: It's just weird to like go to Disneyland and everybody's wearing a superhero t-shirt and it used to be that I was the only person wearing superhero t-shirts and yeah it's caused me quite the sartorial crisis. I am Scott E. Katman, professor of film studies and comic studies at Stanford University. Growing up, superheroes were a fanboy thing. It wasn't this global powerhouse idea of the superhero that we have now. I didn't want my folks to know how many comics I was buying. I don't think I wanted them to know how much time I spent reading them. Comics are these things, you hold them in the hand, fold it up, you put it under your pillow. If you're looking for adventure this summer, escape with Marvel Comics. You read them furtively, you pass them around, you talk to your friends... The comic books themselves were disreputable and their disreputability was a big part of their appeal. And with Marvel Comics, you're never alone because they can go with you, in the car or to the park, even on a rainy day. Marvel Comics in particular, I think, really fostered this sense of belonging to a community. What Jack Kirby and Stan Lee did in the 1960s was they created monstrous superheroes. I'm talking about The Thing and The Fantastic Four, who is this sort of powerful, monstrous figure. The Fantastic Four, starring The Thing with the strength of a thousand men. The Thing turns into a big, rocky being, while his teammates change in various ways, but they're still pretty much human-looking.
5: Kind of a thing about
4: turn ben? And he is constantly trying to turn himself back into Ben Grimm, the person he was before.
5: Look at me!
4: Oh! And the Hulk is another one, Doctor Banner, where the Hulk is a kind of monstrous alter ego for Bruce Banner.
5: Now might be a really good time for you to get angry.
4: I'm always angry and then the X-Men.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution.
4: All of the mutants are considered monstrous in some way or another.
2: We must know who they are and above all, what they can do.
4: So they're sort of cursed by that and trying to figure out how to navigate the world, even as they're perceived as monsters.
5: The truth is,
4: That mutants are very real. In the 1960s, when those characters were appearing, they were all like metaphors for puberty. What kind of place is this? You know, suddenly your body is changing, you're not fully in control of it, and you don't know whether you're going to fit in. Who are you people? Maybe when you look in the mirror, you see something horrible looking back at you. When you read a superhero comic, you are identifying with a somewhat freakish body the monstrous people who are reading comics they're every one of us
6: even though you've been raised as a human being you are not one of them you have
4: great powers i like to think that i'm a little bit of a monster i'm the only person at stanford with this many comic books in their office i'm literally moving academic books out and comics in That's like my self-identity, is to sort of just do this academic thing a little bit differently and be a monster in just the most benign way. I'm not burning down the institution, but I am trying to show my students that there are other ways to be a scholar.
6: What is he doing?
4: He's beginning to believe. I was the monster in my life. That's a horrible cliché. If you end with it, I'm coming after you.
1: (laughs) Okay. The giant lemur. It's extinct. In the San Francisco Zoo, the enclosures are built to resemble their animals' natural habitats. It says giant lemurs the size of small gorillas once lived on Madagascar. Even if it's too late like for the extinct giant lemur. They disappeared some 2,000 years ago, shortly after the first people arrived on the island. Scientists think the early people may have hunted the giant lemurs to extinction. And it has like this big red stamp on it that says extinct. But walking around these enclosures, are we looking down on places that will never exist again? Information plaques for the lemur habitat. Describe to us how it's nature, their animal. nature, is, is disappearing. That's a, it's a vanishing animal? There's a is donation box to help prevent damage animal. to the remaining they lemur habitats. Do we have to display animals in order to help them? In our last story, we witness what happens when humans collide with nature and how a mythical creature gets caught in the crosshairs. Mythologizing doesn't always create monsters. It can also create protectors.
7: This
3: summer, I
7: travel to Iceland.
3: I have a question. Yeah.
7: I heard it was beautiful.
3: This has never happened before. I was putting in a password so I could open up and take a picture. But here's the
7: real reason I
3: went. And every time I press one number, another one lights up and it won't let me open I was hoping to meet some elves. Yeah, that's very, I'm sorry, very elfy. <laughs> they have this kind of humor.
7: So <laughs> Okay, yeah. well.
3: If you try again now that you've talked about this, it might work. I'm on an elf okay. tour with Raga
7: who claims to see and communicate with elves, and introduces visitors to the elf population in a small park near her house. Icelandic elves are pretty human-like and don't resemble the pointy-eared creatures seen in TV and movies. As we are standing on a lookout over a thundering waterfall, I asked some fellow travelers about their experiences with Icelandic nature.
8: What is most impressive is the difference of the colors. You change between the greens to the browns to the whites. This is the old colors in one picture. This is amazing.
6: We just saw a rainbow being bounced off a waterfall with the sunlight in the background. And it's just absolutely phenomenal.
7: Many people also mentioned that the landscape felt otherworldly.
1: It really feels like you're on another planet, essentially. <laughs>
3: looks a bit like Mars, like what we picture Mars to look like.
7: Recently, the elves have received a lot of publicity surrounding construction projects in Iceland that have been postponed or canceled because of the damage they would do to elf habitats. It is believed that the elves live in nature, usually under rocks and trees, and so the development of the landscape means the destruction of their homes.
3: Well, you don't want to damage a home when you see a whole family living in that home. Uh, So a rock, a lava area is, you want to protect it for many reasons. It's beautiful for the human eyes to look at. Uh, It's historical, you know. And there is a family living there, or there is an elf church. You don't want to destroy that. So it, it works together. But I
7: still have not met any elves. I asked some tourists if they had had better luck. Have you heard about elves in Iceland at all? About what? Elves? The culture of folklore and elves and trolls?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, what can you tell us about the elves? One stopped me the other day and asked me for some silver coin. But I might have been, I don't know, confused or drunk. I'm not sure.
0: But I think it's so funny.
7: I grew up believing in elves and people we didn't see. I met a woman who worked at a puffin museum and who was able to give me some insight as to where I might find them. Uh, Just last night by the dinner table, we were
0: talking about it with my parents and (laughs) in-laws. We were telling stories that, like, in my house that I grew up in, there was an elf cave behind it, and when they were trying to build the house, the machine always broke down when it was trying to dig into the uh, cave there. Then they have to move the house further down to... Don't interrupt the elves. (laughs) So yeah, it's very rich in our beliefs.
7: Iceland was originally settled by Vikings from Scandinavia, who brought their language, culture, and religion. Even after Iceland was Christianized, many of these beliefs persisted. This is Terry Gunnell, a professor of folklore at the University of Iceland. He studies the nature of these beliefs and how and why they develop and evolve. I asked Terry about what was at the heart of this belief in elves.
6: People are living in a landscape where your house can be knocked down by something you can't see through a a volcano or or an earthquake. Um, You turn on your taps and and you get the smell of sulfur coming out, underlining just below your feet. There is lava alive. Um, You can hear glaciers talk and you can see this effect that they've had on the landscape. You hear them growling as they move through the land. Uh, You go to the hot springs and you hear them talking. You look at the sky and you see the northern lights. So people are very aware that there is power out there.
7: As I continued on my quest and asked more and more Icelanders about the elves, it became clear that perspectives on this issue range across a vast spectrum. On one end are the clairvoyants, or the people who can see and communicate with elves people like
3: Raga. I met a small elf once. He was very young and he asked, he looked at me with his big eyes and he was really surprised and he said, are you a human? <laughs> I said, yes. So humans exist, he said. <laughs> I thought it was only in my grandmother's stories. So they have stories like that. <laughs> but that was fun for both of us, I think. That. <laughs>
7: But when you ask many Icelanders if they have had experiences with elves, you usually get this, I won't say yes, and I won't say no kind of response.
8: We were uh, gathering the sheep from the mountains. So I had this horse, it's called Brunki, because he's a brown. And we were just walking and nothing was going on. And then we came suddenly to a big stone. And uh, suddenly the horse stopped. He's 20 years old. He was born up in these mountains, done that hundreds of times. Suddenly he stopped and I was trying to pull him and he wouldn't go near the stone. I don't know why. So when I came down, I asked the people, was it earthquake? Why did the horse behave like that? And everybody smiled because they didn't have any answer about that. So if you ask me, was something there, well, everyone has to answer for himself.
7: (laughs) (laughs) And if the desire to save the elf population wasn't enough to encourage the preservation of the landscape, there are other examples of nature retaliating when harmed. One of the first things most people notice about Iceland is the lack of trees. I spoke to Odor Sturluson, the project manager for Startup Tourism, an incubator for businesses addressing tourism in Iceland.
6: For example, there are not many trees in Iceland, but according to historical sources, when Icelanders got here originally, there were a bunch of trees here. But this is like the time of the Vikings, so they just, I mean, they just cut them all down to make houses or boats. And at that time, they could live considerably farther inland But when they cut down all these trees, it meant that the soil eroded or make it considerably more difficult to live inland, which is why you see a lot of these deserts. So this sort of bleak environment, we know that it's already been affected directly by us in a way that made it almost impossible for us to live here. So Icelandic people are very um, protective because they know that it doesn't take much to change things for the worse.
7: Historically, there has not been much need for development in Iceland, since there are only 300,000 people in a country roughly the size of Ohio. And until recently, most of the visitors to Iceland were extreme adventure types. But due to cheaper flights, a highly publicized volcanic eruption in 2010, and the appearance of the landscape in many popular movies and TV shows, Iceland's obscurity is now a thing of the past. In 2016, 2 million people visited Iceland. I asked some locals what the increase in tourism has been like for them.
8: It's like a flood.
7: There are a lot of people now. It's crazy how much people it is.
0: Some of the places are so crowded that you don't want to go there anymore.
8: (laughs) And the change
6: has been crazy. The tourism has uh, seriously affected the the, the country, I think. I think because Iceland is quite a fragile place. It's quite a small place, small population. I have to uh, think very carefully about how you accommodate the new uh, levels of tourism.
7: So maybe the solution is to implement regulations to slow tourism. But it's not that simple. In 2008, Iceland suffered from a bank crash, which led to an unprecedented recession.
2: Tourism has been the factor in us gaining an economic foothold again. It has been the uh, creating factor behind job creation, and it has influenced, of course, all around the country. So... It has been the driving force
7: behind getting Iceland out of the recession. So tourism has definitely boosted the Icelandic economy. But while it is fairly easy for more tour companies to meet rapidly increased demand, it is almost impossible to install infrastructure and implement conservation measures in such a short time. I am on a tour which has promised to take us to remote locations that few have visited. But as more visitors seek wilderness, Untouched places are increasingly harder to find.
8: Because now we're going to walk through where the sand is the moss. Somewhere is very wet, you know, and one footstep can leave a, a long, long imprint. So, so then we try to use the stones. So please try to, you know, uh, walk, walk in, in until recently. Place. So Iceland I was so
7: unpopulated that there was no real need for laws governing where people are allowed to hike or camp. But with the increase in tourism that has a focus on adventure and wild experiences this lack of regulation is becoming less and less feasible.
8: Over the period of my life, as long as I lived, we had have that benefit to have the nature and go wherever we want to, almost. So we can go quite far. Hiking, people can go almost everywhere. So um, that's the change now because uh, they're closing more and more areas now. So we are getting used to not to go where we could go before.
7: As it stands now, the lack of infrastructure presents a danger for visitors who may not have a thorough understanding of the landscape.
5: Well, if you go onto the glacier, then that's dangerous. We can walk through here, no? There is no, no trail, but you, you can like, drive this road, but it's kind of rough in some places.
0: It's not and it's not
5: dangerous. A
1: lot of people that come out here they don't really know the environment and they go out into it and then you have a lot of situations where you have like a lot of the um, like search and rescue and whatnot are having to go help people in a lot of circumstances because they'll go up to these areas thinking that it's okay but without knowing the full you know background on the area so it can it can be also kind of drastic in that
5: sense it can be a little dangerous.
7: But the tension is that if sites are made more accessible that will mean more visitors to these wilderness areas.
5: Okay, um, my name is Gudmundur Øvmundsson. Uh, I'm like a park manager here at Jökulsárglyúr, which is a part of uh, Vatnajökull National Park in Iceland.
7: To get to this park, you have to drive down a gravel road for 15 miles or so. So this area is not frequently visited right now. I talked to Gudmundur, about how the park might change with better roads and infrastructure.
5: Uh, There is this idea, or it has already started, building a proper road between this area. It would connect Ausbergi more with the Ring Road, and I guess that would increase the number a lot, uh, which is in some ways good, but also a challenge to protect what we have here, the nature, the quietness, the stillness around, and when the road is ready, uh, we will have a job to do. He
7: also talked about the possibility of building more than just roads in the highland.
5: Now there are some ideas to build hotels in the central highlands, which are like totally different from the current infrastructure. And what do you think about that? Yeah, it's just crazy. You know? it's, <laughs> I think it would just be, be very damaging for, for the central highlands and how they are perceived. There, they are seen as, as, as a wilderness. They are seen as... Uh, rough place. Nobody lives there. It's impossible to live there. And so in that way, people have this respect for the island. They understand it's a dangerous place, but still a fascinating place. And
7: Do you think that's a huge part of Icelandic culture that might be lost? Uh,
5: absolutely. Absolutely. Although I'm not sure that uh, not everybody understands this value, but it will, would completely destroy it.
7: It is precisely the roughness of the landscape and the melding of the magnificent with the formidable that has inspired the belief in hidden nature creatures and which is so essential to Icelandic culture and identity.
3: We like it the way it is, a little bit raw. We shouldn't, you know, have to sugarcoat it for other people to come and visit because they're coming to see that.
8: Places like this, you know, you you stand here and you don't see anybody. It's not very common because when you travel Europe, there's farm, farm. You always see, you know, man in everywhere, everywhere you go. But here you don't, it's just nature, unspoiled. So that's the appeal for me anyway. I just like being out there and just hearing the wind, the water running, and nobody honking or traffic or, you know, you need to get away from that.
7: And it is not only the landscape that is at stake, but the nuanced role of the elves in Icelandic culture is at risk of being lost as Iceland adapts to the increase in tourism.
6: Icelanders, of course, realized that the the rest of the world was interested in their beliefs. And they were quite amused by this. that anybody should be interested in their, their sense that the landscape is alive uh, and is personified in these figures. And so, yeah, that they're, they're prepared to uh, talk about it and, and to tell stories for, for tourists if, if it keeps the tourists happy. So you'll have places like you'll have Elf Walks and you'll have a town Hapnefjord, which has a sign calling itself the Elf Town. So this is really playing off those beliefs. But something more for outsiders.
7: So something must be done if the Icelandic landscape is going to be preserved. Steiner Kaldal is the project manager of Hollanded Iceland National Park, an NGO which is gathering various interest groups to petition for the creation of a national park which would encompass the entire Highland region.
8: You have black sand deserts, you have lava fields, you have volcanoes in the distance, you have glaciers, you have uh, lush wetlands, you have this neon green moss, powerful glacial rivers, uh, sensitive, colorful geothermal areas. So the variety that you experience in the highland is unique.
7: The organization has formed a coalition of stakeholders, ranging from nature conservation groups to outdoor recreation and tourism companies, which have vested interest in the highland. They recently released a statement of intent that shows the vision they have for a national highland park.
8: I think a highland park that covers 40% of this island uh, could be uh, exemplary to other nations in terms of conservation.
7: But despite the worries and the growing pains that Iceland is experiencing, there's incredible potential for environmental education and awareness to reach visitors from around the world.
1: I think that's the most important thing is to really try to connect with nature in a different kind of way. And seeing the glaciers, it's like, oh my goodness, global warming is real.
0: Uh, I just think it's important for people to understand, as particularly as tourists, I feel that you can arrive en masse to a country, not respect it. Whereas when you come to Iceland, everything is so pure, so beautiful, you don't want to do anything that will in any way harm it.
7: So the future of the Icelandic landscape hangs in the balance. But what about the future of the hidden inhabitants and protectors of the landscape? What about the elves?
6: it's essentially what's happening when when people are telling their children about the hidden people that live in the rocks here and there is that they're giving their children a sense of um responsibility for the landscape the idea that the landscape is not something you just destroy it's alive and it's got it's got a magic to it it's got a spirit to it um and and that they, the children ought to have respect for the landscape that they're living in um so this, is, uh, this, this will go on, and if this, this, this is a, something that gives magic to the landscape of Iceland, adding to the actual magic that's already in the landscape. So certainly it's, it's connected to having respect for the world that you live in.
7: The morning I was supposed to leave Iceland, I was awakened by the sounds of the wind, ferociously whipping against the window panes of the hostel where I was staying. Through sleepy eyes, I half expected to see an elf looking at me from the other side of the window. As I lay in bed praying that I was not caught in the midst of a severe storm and that I would be able to get back home that day, I was struck by how truly impossible it was to ignore the vitality of nature in Iceland.
3: Nature in Iceland is very much alive. You can't ignore it. You know, we are now waiting for the next eruption hope you get to your plane before that happens <laughs> so you know even if no matter what you dress up for city life we still have earthquakes and fierce wind and you know volcano eruptions so we know that nature is alive
7: to see pictures of the highland and find out more about conservation efforts visit hollandid.is that's halendi d.is
1: Oh, wow, look at all the stuffed animals. As we leave the zoo, we pass through its final exhibit, the gift shop. It's a smoky day. Another wildfire rages across California. As we exit the zoo, we're reminded that it wasn't dragons that set the woods on fire. There are no elves to protect the trees. The Hulk isn't smashing the wilderness to bits. I can't help but wonder if we create mists and monsters, so that we don't have to look at ourselves.
8: Hello, I'm Neil
4: Gaiman, and you're listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: This episode of State of the Human was produced by Chris Stock, Sophie McNulty, Ben Schwartz, Rachel Thompson, Morgan Cannon, Maddie Fish, Jet Hayward, and me, Claudia Hema. With help from Jenny March, Jake Warga. Christy Hartman, Ali Wallner, and Jonah Willinghams. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing and Rhetoric, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can find links to all the music and archival sound you heard in this episode, and listen to every other episode of State of the Human at our website, storytelling.stanford.edu.